Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Well, I wouldn't want it to be too perfect every night. It is live after all. Working at Lincoln Center, it sounds very huge and elevated. And that's what it feels like, like once you're working there. Because rent is about much more than just friendship, love, and musical theater. It was about something that shook musical theater. People are becoming more and more comfortable with, you know, issue of people being different. I mean, we do it all. I mean, you know, we don't, we don't back away from anything. Welcome to Broadway Bullet, Volume 303, for February 5th, 2009. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we got a lot of great stuff for you. We got a lot of songs still from our first Spotlight performance on January 25th, and we're also going to hear from the Book of Lambert, the writer and actor from that at La Mama. We've also got Redirections Theater with their show Figaro Figaro. And we got Producers Perspective and On the Positive Side on board. So we got a full episode for you. Uh, quick note, I wanna—I made a plea last week and I wanted to thank everybody who has taken the time and opened their hearts and wallets to help donate to save our studio. We have raised uh, over $410 so far this week, and uh, but we're not out of the dark yet. Like I said, we need $1,000 to be safe. So um, if you're listening, uh, I, I think we've gotten a week grace or two from our landlord, but we're, we're still not out of the dark. And if you have... If you have it in you to donate anything, anywhere from $1, to $100, $10, $5, $15, $50, whatever, it would be greatly appreciated, I assure you. You can just go to the Broadway Bullet website, broadwaybullet.com, and there's a donate button through PayPal on the front page. And uh, if you can, we, we, we keep a running tally of how much we've raised so far, and anything you can give would be greatly appreciated. Also, uh, another way you can help if you're in New York is come to our live event. The first one went fantastic. We got another one this weekend, February 8th, Sunday. It's at the Times Square Art Center between 42nd and 43rd Street on 8th Avenue. You can get in for $5 off uh, for only $10 total if you use the code KUMQUAT. All the information's on our website. We've got some fantastic performers. We've had Joe Iconis on this program before, a Cleveland Award winning. He's going to be doing a showcase, as well as Julie Fold aside from South Pacific. Uh, we have an open mic, and by all means, if you're a singer, uh, come down and join the open mic. Uh, Sign-up starts at 5.45 for the open mic. The whole show starts at 6.30. Uh, in fact, one of our open micers was heard by uh, James Barber at the show, and James invited him to perform with him at his Sardis gig. So, you know, great things can happen. There's cash and prizes. Uh, the winner of the sing-off at the end of the night gets $50 cash, as well as two hours of recording studio time with me, two hours of rehearsal space with Roy Aria Studios, as well as a video edit of their performance for, for use on YouTube or wherever else they would like. So come down this Sunday, February 8th, sing with us, relax, enjoy some great talent, uh, meet some new friends. It's going to be a lot of fun. You can check out, find all the information on broadwaybullet.com. And uh, you never know who's going to show up at these things. Like I said, last uh, show, James Barber showed up to surprise everybody with two songs at the end of the night. And we do also have a surprise special guest for this show. So, But you're not going to know who it is unless you're there or, or you hear about it after the fact. So uh, I'll see you there. On the boards. 
The Redirections Theatre Company is back with a new play, Figaro Figaro, that combines two of the Figaro stories into one play. We have director Aaron Smiley here with us to talk about the show. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. All right, so uh, first things out of the way, tell us a little bit about uh, Redirections production of Figaro Figaro, which is opening February 27th? It is opening on February 27th, right at the end of the month. So um, Figaro Figaro, the text is based on, as you said, two of the Figaro stories. It's based on uh, Beaumarchais' Marriage of Figaro, um, one of the original ones. And it's also based on um, a later text uh, by a fellow named Odon van Horvath um, called Figaro Gets a Divorce. Um, they're adapted by Eric Overmeyer, who theater folks should know from uh, his best-known text, um, On the Verge, though he has others well-known as well. Um, Boomerang actually produced um, one of his uh, native speech, if I remember correctly, back in December. Um, and folks that just watch TV and other such things might know him as a producer for Law and & Order and uh, The Wire and the short-lived New Amsterdam. That was a fun show. Um, so he's, he's a name that's out there, and he's uh, an interesting guy. Um, but um, he did uh, this production originally at Yale Rep with uh, a company that with, with the companies up there. And um, it's actually only been done twice. This is the New York premiere of the piece, so we're very excited about that. Uh, but it takes the two texts, put them together into one coherent evening, uh, and it's a lot of fun. The first part is very run around, a uh, lot of doors <laughs> kind of thing. Um, it's very uh, almost Commedia esque, and the second part, um, the divorce is is it's a more dramatic side to it. So it's an interesting mar marriage, no pun intended, <laughs> of the two uh, styles. And um, Overmeyer does a really great job of melding both pieces together, and then as well um, trimming a lot of marriage because marriage is a long piece. So um, he does a really good job with the adaptation on that in particular. So, so what drew you to this piece as a director? Oh, goodness. Um, we found this piece uh, uh, like two and a half years ago. I found this uh, looking through the shelves and shelves of the draw bookstore. And it's, it's a piece that um, appealed to the talents uh, that we had on t hand at the time uh, they've, um, within our company, as well as it's a piece that... Isn't, hasn't been seen in New York, um, so that is also an added attraction, the idea of bringing it to the stage here for the people to get the opportunity to see it. And then as a director, I just, I love the characters. The characters are such fun, and the ability to play with those well-known characters through the operas and yet bring your own spin to it because people don't usually see them in a straight play context. People see them singing the famous arias that they sing in the Mozart and the Rossini. Um, Actually, I watched the Bart Scher, um production of uh, Barber <laughs> last night. It was on my DVR <laughs> after <laughs> sitting there for a while. It's excellent if anybody hasn't seen it. Uh, but the, those iconic characters and putting them into into situations, especially in divorce, that people people don't know. People don't know the story um, once it gets to that point. So that's really exciting for me as a director also to be able to take what's known and then take it into the unknown. Well, one, one thing that always interests me is uh, as you're building, you know, your career as a director in New mm -hmm. York, it's obviously for a while it's not really a full-time, you know, rent-paying right. thing for <laughs> yeah. a thing. But directing isn't quite like acting in terms mm -hmm. of it's like 
when you get busy, you get even busier than the actors because you got so much to work on. And I'm always interested in how you mm -hmm. find jobs that can let you have the flexibility to take on a project when you need to. Well, <laughs> for me personally, I just got really lucky. Um, I can say this because nobody at my day job is going to listen to this because I'm not going to send them the link. But I, I am blessed with a day job where I can spend some of my time sitting at my desk working on theater stuff. Um, I, I get everything done that I'm supposed to do, but then I allocate a couple hours <laughs> in the day when I need to sit down and do like a schedule or call some studios or get some stuff booked. Or... Did you see the Office episode on time theft? <laughs> I have not. <laughs> Though I imagine it is probably something akin to that. <laughs> yes, I am thieving time, actually, in order to fuel my directing career. <laughs> um, but no, um, I, I imagine if I were doing something, like I know a lot of actors, they, they wait tables, they bartend, they, they temp. Um, on, with those two previous, I know I've waited tables. I know it's really hard. You can't do anything else when you're when you're waiting tables like you can't even check your blackberry I didn't have a blackberry back then that was a while ago but like I mean if you're temping or if you're sitting at an office job you're sitting at a computer for eight hours a day and chances are a lot of people in the theater business are also very clever individuals so we tend to also be able to work quickly with anything we are tasked with and we are also underestimated so <laughs> I believe oh I mean, they're in theater exactly they, they look at your oh they got a sentence written oh. yay they look at your resume and they say, B.A. in drama. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> you can do this. Um, so <laughs> I find that that oftentimes people will be very, they're like, oh, my gosh, you finished this report already? Yeah, of course. It took me like five minutes. I learned everything I needed to do for it in seventh grade. So, <laughs> so I find that if I maybe don't turn in that report quite as quickly, I have a lot of other time to do theater things. So <laughs> in that way, I am blessed. So. Now, do you have a certain process? I mean, you've directed mm -hmm. before, and uh, how do you go about scouting out projects and finding stuff to keep yourself busy and keep your <laughs> keep your chops up and advance? And yeah, because you can't just uh, uh, with a director, unlike an actor, you can't you can't just take a class. You can't just uh, sign up for stuff to try and keep yourself sharp. Um, I mean, basically, I'm I'm fortunate with redirections. There's there's I'm also the associate artistic director, so we have a company of actors, but we also pick projects that we all want to work on. And so um, the only there's only two of us that are resident directors, um, and so we we share the load primarily. Um, looks like next season we'll probably be bringing in a third uh, director who um, is also resident company member, but he does a lot of other things too. So this. Um, Will probably be his first time directing for us, but he's directed a lot of other places as well. Um, and so with that, redirections gives me those opportunities, thankfully. Um, with other gigs, it's a lot of like send your resume out, go on interviews, and hope that somebody gives you a chance. Um, there's, I, I mean, I think with the economy right now, there's less being produced um, in the, in general. Um, though it, it seems that off off slash indie hasn't suffered quite as much yet because I feel like if if people had productions lined up, they're already all the all the money's been raised. It's all it's all gonna happen. So uh, they because you have to book a theater four or five months in advance. So. Well, on the same hand, with some of the smaller mm -hmm. companies, I imagine it's hard to figure out who might be looking for a director. And sometimes, mm -hmm. by the, of course, by the time the show is announced, they usually have a director. So right. what techniques do you have to like try to spot the projects where there might be opportunities opening? 
Uh, <laughs> um, basically, so you do, before you send in yeah, your resume and yeah, it's, a, it's a lot of a lot of networking. I mean, you go to you go to these these nights. You have a couple business cards on hand. You talk know people who know people. Um, like I'd sent my resume off to a friend who was working on a show that the director might be dropping out, and they might need, and I've done the show before, so who knows if that would even happen because it was a bunch of maybes. But that's the kind of thing that happens when you end up. All of a sudden, you're in a room somewhere in like Kentucky, directing who knows what, and you're standing there being like, "How did how did I end up here? What?" <laughs> so, I mean, it's it's a lot of fr- friends of friends, and who do you know, and going to um, various networking events like your wonderful Broadway Bullet Spotlight, which I will gladly plug. I don't know yeah, if this right, yeah this Sunday yeah it's gonna yeah be. <laughs> I don't know if this is going to come out. Yep, bef- it's going to be out before our show this delightful. Sunday. Well, v- many redirections folks will be on hand as well as hopefully some of the cast of Figaro Figaro, so people can come see us. Though, as it's not the opera, uh, I don't know how much uh, singing and dancing there, there will be <laughs> from our cast, but. Um, but though we are using music from the opera, so we're uh, ad- adapting a lot of it for incidental music, and we have five actor musicians doing a lot of cool stuff um, with transitions and music. There's a, so a couple pieces that are built into the second act, so we're excited about that concept of um, using the Mozart, using the Rossini, using uh, the Massenet, pieces people know, and then bringing them into an unexpected setting. So. All right, so uh, the show runs from February 27th through March 22nd. Mm-hmm. And uh, what, the, what theater is this? We're at there? the 14th Street Theater, the usual uh, home for redirection. So if you've seen one of our shows, you know where you're going. But if, if they you, haven't seen If they <laughs> haven't, come see this one, because you will enjoy yourself, I promise, um, despite, the <laughs> despite the fact I'm, I'm starting rehearsals tonight, so it's delightful to be in here plugging the show either way. But then we have a fantastic cast lined up, and I'm very, very excited about it. So. All right, so the address mm-hmm. is, uh, for the website, it's www.redirectionstheater, spelled with an R-E, mm-hmm. dot com. Yes, and um, we'll have tickets available on smartticscott.com, and um, go ahead and visit the website. Uh, we'll be getting info about the show and our actors up in uh, the next week or two. All right. Any parting shots you want to say goodbye with? Um, thanks so much for listening. Hope you can come. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Aaron Smiley, for coming by, okay. and best of luck with uh, production. Thank you very much. Listening room. Next from Ragtime, our final spot from the Astoria Performing Arts Center, we have Anna Lise Jensen. Yep. She's going to be playing the role of mother, and she is singing the song Back to Before. <laughs> Anything else you want to tell us before you? I think you should come see the show. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Annalise Jensen, everybody. <laughs> right life was a road so certain and straight and unbending our little road with never a crossroad inside back in the days when we spoke in civilized voices women in white 
and sturdy young men at the oar. Back in the days when I let you make all my choices, we can never go back to to the sea. I was content, a princess asleep and enchanted. If I had dreams, then I let you dream them for me. Back in the days when everything seemed so much clearer, women in white who knew Jensen, everybody. Remember? Astoria Performing Arts Center, production of Ragtime. It opens when? February 5th. That's coming right up, so you'll want to check that out. Find out more about Astoria Performing Arts Center's presentation of Ragtime and our show notes at broadwaybullet.com. The Call Board. The award-winning York Theatre Company is thrilled to announce casting for three presentations in the developmental reading series. As always, these readings are open to the general public and admission is free, but reservations are suggested and can be obtained by emailing series coordinator Jeff Landsman at j 
landsman at yorktheater.org or calling 212-935-5824, extension 24. And all that information, of course, is on our show notes. A little more information. Each year, York's Developmental Reading Series presents between 30 to 40 readings and workshops of new musicals by emerging and established authors, all free of charge to the public. Producing artistic director James Morgan said, quote, these readings give writers a unique opportunity to get audience feedback while the show is still in progress, giving audiences an active role in the creative process, end quote. York's productions of Souvenir and the Musical of Musicals the musical, were first developed in the developmental reading series where the current Tony Award-winning Broadway hit Avenue Q also made early appearances. The developmental reading series is made possible in part through a generous donation from the Dorothy Streslin Foundation. All right, next up, Playbill.com reports a starry cast has been assembled for the White Plains Performing Arts Center's upcoming production of Stephen Sondheim and Hugh Wheeler's A Little Night Music. Directed by Sidney J. Burgoyne, the Tony-winning musical will play the New York venue March 5th to 22nd. The cast will be led by Penny Fuller as Desiree, Mark Jacoby as Frederick, Sheila Smith as Madam Armfeld, and Laura Osnes as Annie. Find the full casting list in our show notes. And every Wednesday at noon in the Times Square Information Center, it's right next to the Palace Theater, Seth hosts a free hour talk show. It's like his famous Chatterbox shows, and it's recorded for Sirius XM. Great Broadway guests and a chance to hear and meet your favorite singing deconstructor. All right, well, let's get back to the program. The Producer's Perspective. Hi, this is Ken Davenport with theproducersperspective.com. Okay, we're going to start this week off with a poll. I want you to raise your hands if you've ever purchased tickets through a scalper, a ticket broker, or anyone in the secondary market, StubHub, anybody. Okay, raise them up high so I can see them. That's one, two, three. Okay, I really can't see your hands, obviously. But I bet there's a lot in the air right now. Because the secondary market is a big one, and frankly, it's been growing over the past 10 years thanks to the internet and how easy it is to enter the market. And it's something, frankly, that many Broadway producers are concerned about. And sure, when it's abused, I'm concerned about it too. But frankly, the secondary market is doing a lot of things very well, and there's a lot we can learn from them. Let's just think about it in terms of gross sales. Broadway reported close to a billion dollars in gross sales in 2008, and frankly, we were thrilled to get it considering the current state of the economy. But think about what isn't included in that billion. All that money above the face value of the ticket that the brokers and the scalpers and the secondary market, uh, what they're getting, that tips the scale well over a billion. So when you think about it, Broadway is in excess of a billion dollar industry as we've been sort of flirting with that billion dollar mark for years we've way past it which is great news and this is where i think we have something to learn from the secondary market i sit in ad meeting after ad meeting and all that we do is discuss how to discount another discount outlet how can we sell more tickets for less money when the secondary market has grown and grown and grown over the years and you know what they do they sell tickets for full price and beyond. They have a huge customer database of thousands, if not millions of people that are willing to pay top dollar. They're, they're not price resistant when the right product is put in front of them. It was like when I was 16 years old and I wanted to see Phantom of the Opera up close. I had seen it once before from the second to last row of the balcony at the Majestic. And frankly, all that I wanted to do was see what was under that phantom's mask when it came off at the end. And if any of you have uh, sat up in the second to last row of the balcony at the Majestic, you can't see very much. So I saved up all the money that I could 
from delivering pizza at Domino's and eventually purchased two third row tickets on the aisle to see Phantom of the Opera on Broadway. This was 1989 and the tickets were $140 a piece. Interestingly enough, that's what about they go for on a Saturday night at Billy Elliot, now full price. But it was worth it. And the brokers satisfied a need. But there are also cases when they go the opposite direction, like a few weeks ago when my mother called me, concerned that her Annie tickets were too expensive. I asked her how she bought them. She said she Googled Annie, clicked on the first link that came up, and paid well over face value because she thought she was getting them through the official source. And she was soured on the experience after I explained to her what happened, and she, because she was concerned that she wouldn't be able to afford taking her grandkids to see Annie in the future. And this is where there is an abuse of the secondary market, which is why I think it is time for the primary and the secondary to reach across the aisle and shake hands and figure out how to work together. There has got to be a way we can help each other. They have something which is of tremendous value to us, customer information for full price and beyond buyers. And those are the people that are the key to recoupment and profitability. And we have something that they can't live without, the shows. We have the product. They have a lot of people. Let's figure it out and build this to a $2 billion a year industry. I'm Ken Davenport with theproducersperspective.com. Right, the lovely and talented Katie Kozlowski was one of our featured showcase performers at our first event on the 25th. And here is a recording live from the showcase of her singing Call from the Vatican. Who's not wearing any clothes? I'm not, my darling. Who's afraid to kiss your toes?
on the boards. The Book of Lambert is a new show by playwright Leslie Lee, opening at La Mama on February 13th. And we've got Leslie Lee joining us today, who is also Obie and Obie winning and Tony nominated for The First Breeze of Summer. And actor Arthur French, who was just recently in Broadway and dividing the estate by Horton Foote here in the studio. How are the two of you doing? Well, great. Great. We're here with you. <laughs> Can I get you to introduce yourselves really quickly so they connect the, the voices with your names? I'm Leslie Lee. <clears throat> Pardon me, Leslie Lee. Sounds like I'm stuttering. <clears throat> but that's who I am. Leslie Leslie Lee. Hurry. Leslie Leslie. <laughs> <laughs> or Leslie Lee. I'm Arthur French. Uh, my fam- nickname is Leslie, so I guess that's my new claim to fame. And I just, as you said, close and dividing the estate. This has got to be a play. Two black guys named Leslie. Yeah. <laughs> Five guys named Mode. <laughs> we actually we we have the same birthday. Uh, so we have a lot of connections. My children studied uh, playwriting with him, and they're doing well. So. And we go back yeah, a long way. We, we go, go back. back. To the Negro Ensemble Company. The right. Arthur's one of the founding members of it. And I came in, I think, maybe 10, how many? Hmm? 75. Yeah, but you were there like the second or third second, year. Yeah, I guess, yeah. Right, yeah. Right, right, right. So I was there from the beginning. So since I'm the older person, I think that <laughs> Leslie should defer, you know, <laughs> have proper respect. Well, you can't right. be a day over 37. <laughs> 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 uh, right, exactly. <laughs> All right, so first, thing, first things first before we kind of get off on a tangent here, let's talk about the, the new play, The right. Book of Lambert, okay. which is set in the subway. The subway system, yeah. This play was written about 30-some <coughs> years ago, and I really didn't know what I had, to be very truthful. I mean, you write a play and you think you know, and then years later you realize you didn't know what you wrote, which happens all the time. So I was out in California. Barbara Montgomery, who's a friend, a mutual friend, an actor, and wonderful actor, uh, she had a shop out there when she was living there. So and I went to, went to visit, and out of the clear blue, Barbara said, I know what that play's about. I said, what play are you talking about? She said, the Book of Lambert. I said, what is it about? <laughs> and then she said, it's about the psychology, the homeless, psychological, blah, blah, blah. And people just, and I said, you know, you're right. I had, my, my concept was someplace else. And the play is about uh, people who are psychologically dead, emotionally dead, or who live in a subterranean. But not Paris Hilton. Oh, no. <laughs> she, she belongs down there. We can, we, we can find a corner for her. I think Paris Hilton is turning into a running joke in this program. Yeah, we can find a place for her, right? <laughs> and that's what the play basically is about. And these are people who have to, who um, have uh, been dislocated either voluntarily or involuntarily and retreated into the, the quote-unquote, the safety or the network of, the, uh, of that subway system, you know? And they live as a community. Just, you know... Not always pleasantly, but they live in that community. And these uh, aren't all rosy down in the subways. Oh no, doesn't <laughs> oh, no. get rosy down there. Not at all, you know. And they have to find a way to uh, get back on top, and through um, uh, through um, the help of uh, of Lambert, who is this young black poet, writer, teacher, who's down there because he was re- jilted and rejected by his first white girlfriend. Um, um, there's several white girlfriends in this. No, 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 enough to do it. <laughs> Too much said that. <laughs> so anyway, that's what basically what's about to say. The disparate group of, eclectic group of people, you know. Uh, and I'll let Arthur describe his character. But you know, these these people, I, I hope they're interesting, and but they're a reflection of 
they're a reflection of, of our society, but also they're a reflection of um, not giving up on anybody, you know, that each of us has some sort of self-worth and that um, none, of them should be for, none of them should be forgotten. I'll, that's all I'll say for the moment. Right. So, so, Arthur, what's your character? Well, I play a character who's uh, blind, Otto, who's blind. Uh, but I think he's also blind uh, emotionally. Mm -hmm. He's blind to love. Mm -hmm. He's blind to a lot of things, uh, even though he lives in the subway. The interesting thing about the subways is that there are people who live there, and there are rooms there. And I, I had researched this for something else where they said when they were building the subway. For when you were out of an acting job? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know, I helped, and I can't remember the author, uh, author of a book who wrote about subway people. Because when they were building the subway, they built off rooms, because people didn't always come up so they could stay there overnight and go back to work in the morning. So there are rooms and actually segments still in the subway system where people have gone back to live. But what I found interesting in that other research is that everyone who live is homeless, everyone who lives in the subway doesn't really have to live there. Mm -hmm. They live there, uh, many people, because they choose to live there, because they choose not to live in the world that most of us live in, and that they want, for whatever their reasons are, to get away, to find their own truth, to find who they are. Mm -hmm. And I think... Uh, reading the play, uh, that's what I felt. It was about people who were trying to find who they were before they went back into that mm -hmm. real world upstairs from the subway. Mm -hmm. So uh, I wanted to say that, you know, we talked about my play closing, Dividing the Estate, <laughs> and you, you're never happy when a Broadway show. But in this instance, I was happy not because the play closed, but because I got to do yeah. this play. Because had it run, I would have stayed with the play. Uh, they pay a, like 50 cents more than... <laughs> but so immediately when we got the word, it was on a Friday, and they said, we're sorry, you know, the play's closing. Who did I call immediately? Immediately. I said, Leslie, Leslie, the place closing. Is the part still open? I don't open? want to go live in the subway. <laughs> I said, is it still open? Did you cast it? Because I knew he had to move forward. Uh, and he said, I'll call the director. Uh, so I was sad, but I was also happy because it's an opportunity to do what I think is a very fascinating play. And the more I work on it, the more I learn about it. So... Uh, that's my statement for I'm that. I was very flattered, too, that he, he heard his manager was just not a Broadway play, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and he wanted to do this play off-off-Broadway at La Mama. La Mama has a great reputation, of course, I mean, <laughs> but at the same time, I was very flattered that Arthur wanted to do it. But he had been with this project for some time as well. He had done several readings of it, you know, and he was the man. He was the person. He was the guy, you know. And so when he said he could do it, I was like pig and slop, you know? <laughs> really, you know? But there are other characters, too, in, in yeah. the play. For example, we have Clancy, who is a, Clancy, who is a white Irish cop who's forgotten the fact that he was Irish, who's forgotten the fact that he was Irish. He's delusional, and he has retreated to the subway system, um, ticketing shadows, ticketing people, uh, squirrels, and all this sort of stuff. And he has to find a way to go back to being a lawgiver who makes who, who creates justice and not you know someone who is frivolous and trivial and um, uh, which sort of makes this sort of a statement as well. Uh, but and then you have uh, also a uh, a young black woman who's uh, 
um, Bonnie, who has been run out of town because she's a hoe and uh, just a drug addict, and she stole from her mother, you know, and she was run out of Galveston, Texas, you know, so she's down there and trying to give birth, and throughout the entire place, she's strained trying to give birth to this baby, trying to push it out ahead of time. It finally comes, but this baby to her is her messiah, and he's going to shake the shit out of every, everybody who did it wrong. You know? That's, those are the types of characters we have in Priscilla, the kind of, what we call her, kind of a nymphomaniac. Yes, I guess that's a good word. She <laughs> considers herself an artist, but she's a go-go dancer or, or a dancer, uh, but she thinks she's an artist. You know, because during her routine, she'll, she'll flavor it, lace her routine with ballet, and, and, and modern jazz, and the, the audience, of course, boos her, you know. But she also is a person who's been uh, sort of uh, sundered aside by her family, and she's looking for love. She's looking for, you know, for peace, you know. And she dies in the play and then comes back to life. And when she comes back to life, she comes back beautiful, you know. Those are the types of characters who are up there. It's an abs somewhat abstract at times, right? Yeah. The play, and so, you know, it, it's experimental. Uh, and um, but it's it's I think it's realistic and symbolic. Some of it is semi autobiographical. You lived in the subways? No, I never lived. <laughs> I won't go over what was semi autobiographical, but well, I will. But so, but you know, some, well, we all live subterraneously sometimes, and that's what the place about as well. We live in these deep, dark recesses of our own minds, you know, uh, um, and. Um, you actually plan metaphors? <laughs> no, I don't. The characters. <laughs> I let the characters do all that sort of yeah. stuff. Help me write the play, you know, which is the objective of writing anyway. People like Arthur, they help me. At a certain point, I, I depend so much on, on people, actors and people like Arthur who are smart actors, and I say, okay, at a certain point, I want you to know more, more about these characters than I do, you know? So at a certain point, I give it to them and let them run with it, and I'm just amazed at what they do. Well, you know, if it ain't on the page, it ain't on the stage. That's I remember going to a party once with this young woman, very erudite young lady. I didn't know what she was talking about, but she was so erudite. And so she said something about the characters. What did I say? I don't know. She said, well, you wrote the play. I said, yeah, but I don't know everything about myself. I don't know everything about my mother, my father, my sister. You know, go ask one of the actors. They'll tell you more about the character at this point than I. Well, what happens? It, it can't. I was, you know, kidding around with it ain't on the page. It ain't. But that's true, because anything you get from it, you're getting from what's on that page, on what the playwright or the uh, writer has written, and so it transfers to you in maybe your own interpretation of it. You haven't had the same experiences in life, of course, but something happens when you read a play. You read a character, and uh, for instance, if we talk about uh, Otto in the book of Lambert, well, what's he doing down there? You know, what happens? Uh, finally, at the end, he, is he useful to anyone? He feels, one of the things he feels that, and this isn't giving anything, that he's disappearing. He keeps saying, I'm disappearing. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm invisible. My legs are gone. And he's trying, I think, to find his visibility. Right. What right. is going to exactly. make him whole? Good. What is going to make him a useful person? Mm -hmm. Is he useful? Mm -hmm. Is you know will he ever be useful or will he just is he just a useless person mm -hmm. down in the subway waiting to die? Mm -hmm. I mean he has one line and it was where he says, "What are we waiting for? We just wait and wait and wait." And, and it's not like waiting for Godot or anybody. Mm -hmm. What are we waiting? What what is there for him to do to mm -hmm. uh, feel like he's not disappearing? That he has a purpose and. He's useful to the world and to 
the people around him. And wouldn't you say, Arthur, too, that there's a lot of humor in the play, too? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. There was a lot of humor in the play. <laughs> <laughs> With all the actors in the dungeon. Right, yeah. you know? No, it is. And uh, the characters, uh, some of them laugh at themselves, and, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. but they're who they are, and they're all, as we all are. Uh, I think everybody's fighting to find out mm -hmm. who they are, how they can be useful, what have they got to contribute to... Uh, to society, to themselves, to their loved ones. Mm -hmm. And there are people, even if, I think the, the play has contemporary relevance because today with with all of the foreclosures. And yeah, I was going to actually ask, was this scheduled to go on before like the oh, recession yeah, became yeah, news? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, right. and uh, people is this being, lucky or not that, <laughs> that the economy is kind of... Right, and people are being driven underground. People are being driven to uh, places where they never thought they would yeah. be. They're driven, being driven into the dark, you know? And I think that's, for me, this play has that sort of, uh, if you want to take your intellect and <laughs> try to stretch it that far, but that's really what's happening, I think, you know? Well, I think with any good play, it's, it, it has relevance outside of itself. Mm -hmm. uh, just to talk for a moment about the play I just did, Dividing the Estate, there are all kinds of references in there. That play was written 20 years ago about foreclosures, about people having mm -hmm. to leave their big property and go out and get jobs. This is a play that's dealing with people being out, forced out of their homes and living where they wouldn't ordinarily live. And so that wasn't true maybe when you even wrote it. But right, the fact right. remains, oh, when Horton Foote wrote it, there was no foreclosures. Mm -hmm. we, did it, we did the same play a year ago when no one knew about the economy mm -hmm. being bad. Now, it, as time goes by, and I think 37 years later, 20 years later, these plays have relevance, oh, right. and that's what a good play is. It should have relevance. So I would do Shakespeare and mm -hmm. all, all those people for centuries because it still has relevance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to talk a little about, just a little bit about some of your careers, and I mean, I'm sure we could probably talk here for like <laughs> hours and hours uh, with everything you've been doing, but maybe if you could each if you could pick like a couple highlights, you know, from thing, you know, of your memories from your involvement in theater. For I know Arthur, you said over forty years acting in yeah. New York. And, He's done so much. Unless he, 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 how, how long have you been writing? And oh, since the, almost that amount of time. <laughs> <laughs> we started when we were two years old. Two years old. Yeah. <laughs> we're quite young. Yeah, uh, but. I guess for me the highlight was certainly um, 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 the first piece of summer, you know, which is which introduced me to the Negro Salmo Company. Well, actually, let me start earlier. My first was it was a play named <clears throat> "Elvis You Down to Down Queen," which was at La Mama, and that my, my first three plays in New York were done at La Mama, and um, La Mama has this really said, has been my spiritual home. Uh, because I, I can fail there, you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, but also, one thing about Ellen Stewart, who's 90 years old now, God wow. bless her, she, um, she helped to stretch my mind. But I will never forget, we, uh, we were on tour, or La Mama was on tour, and, and my girlfriend was in the troupe, in the company. So I was teaching in Connecticut, and my vacation, I w went over and met them uh, in Capri. And uh, so we're in this disco, and the music was pulsating. I thought I was really dancing, you know. <laughs> I thought I was really kicking it, you know. And Ellen Stewart looked across the floor and yelled out across all that music and people, said, 
Leslie Lee, bend your knees, brother, bend your <laughs> knees. What she was saying, get down, brother. I was tight, uptight, and tight ass, you know what I mean? And all the so she, that was one of the highlights, being at La Mama, you know, and doing all your documentary. And then the second was um, uh, the first piece of summer, you know, which introduced me to the Negro Salmo Company and to Broadway and to, you know, et cetera. So those two moments, you know, in the theater. And then this current revival at the Signature, it was just terrific experience, really. We revived the first piece of summer and found that it's still relevant current. Well, um, in case for getting your work out and writing new plays and getting it developed, I, I assume it is, but exactly how much of a... How, how good is it to have that Tony nomination under your belt as you're looking at Oh, it at helps. It, it does help. It, 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 it's nice to have it as part of your resume. You know I mean? <laughs> if, you, if you can't claim anything, you can at least claim that, you know. No, but having gotten it under my belt, I don't think about Broadway anymore. I mean, if it gets there, fine. You know, I, are, are you, uh, does it upset you that there's so few new shows that go to Broadway anymore in the straight play? You know? Well, Arthur would, could probably comment as much as I. I mean, I last night I saw um, uh, an American uh, plan with Richard Greenberg's play, and that was the play that that's that was a revival, I think. I think he had done. And also, I saw Equus the, the night before. <laughs> that's also a revival. You know, there are the new plays are there, but they're, they're they aren't as uh, you know. Yeah, right? hard. It's hard. It really it's is hard difficult. To get new play. I mean, I just it's feel like itself. looking at the, you know the new scape of Broadway. And there's a couple things like August Osage County you know, is right, a right, you know right. is a new hit and that's great. But it seems to me like it's almost come like a formula for producers. Yeah. Grab a revival, grab a couple stars, yeah. put it up for that's twelve what, weeks. And money. That's what makes the money. Unfortunately, it's what makes the money. <laughs> it's you know it's, it's about money. You know, with this for that is true. Like, yeah. Theater's always been, but the theater's always art meets commerce, and there's always yeah. a business element. But I. The problem is... I'm wondering where the creative producers are, you know. <laughs> well, this, as, uh, what is his name? Uh, um, who was the one that produced all of um, Tennessee, a lot of Tennessee Williams' work? Uh, oh, no, 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 Kermit Bloomgarten. He's dead, and he was a man of taste. You know, today, you have to know how to raise money. Producers know how to raise money, but it doesn't really necessarily have to have taste. But it's also much more capitalistic, I think, much more um, you know, today, this, in, in this Broadway situation. They're thinking about making money. New plays don't make money, you know, and they want something. If they they want something that's going to that's been proven, or you know, it's going to recoup their investment, or their their investors' in, uh, investment, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, uh, money is important, yeah, and that's is, uh, yeah. they have to figure out how to make money. Right. So whether you get the latest kid from American Idol, who's whatever you think, they're putting. Butts in the seats. That's right, exactly. And, uh, you know, there, you see there are crowds outside, not s some people like who have been on Broadway or mm -hmm, Sam, mm -hmm. but they're waiting for the people they see on television. Right, exactly, they are, really. And uh, that's <coughs> kind of what is selling shows. So yeah. if you put, if you in Equus, around the corner, they had the young man who played Harry Potter. Yeah, oh yeah. So yeah, that's, right, yeah. you know, that's the... Uh, that's, yeah. The drawing. And then I think, I forget, in... Was it in one? Uh, I don't want to say spam. I may be wrong, but they had a, a clay, kid, clay, 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 yeah, from yeah, yeah. from American Idol. So that's kind of what will sell. Yeah, exactly. I I won't name this show, but I saw a show on Broadway with a kind of pop star, and I didn't really couldn't hear, couldn't understand the person. But it was on a Thursday night in the fall, right? In in the winter, it was full. Yeah. People were cheering, mm -hmm. people were buying T-shirts, mm -hmm. and so you say, okay, 
And I asked, uh, someone took me from, uh, for my birthday, okay, actually. Really, uh, and I didn't want to, you know, you don't want to say something. Mm -hmm. And finally, at the end of the evening, I said, did you understand what she was saying? Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, a big no. head shake. Right. But it didn't okay. matter in the sense that there were people there. Yeah, I can't yeah. argue that. Mm -hmm. they, it was filled, yeah, yeah. and they were buying T-shirts. Right, so right, exactly. You, know. you can't uh, you can't fight. That. <laughs> <laughs> and and for, my, for the first piece of summer, we had Leslie Uggams in it, and Leslie became a draw, was a draw, yeah. and people came to see it. Because it was yeah, I, I mean, I'm not against this. I no, understand but, the business of stars. Yeah. I, I just mean that the whole thing has become this yeah. uncreative-looking package. That's part of the problem. Grab a musty classic, grab a couple stars, put it on stage again for 12 weeks. and Well, you know, a long time ago. It's not that any one piece, I understand, but it just yeah. seems like the whole thing yeah, has become this package that doesn't well, look very creative. I was on a panel once creative. With, uh, with Wendy Wasserstein and uh, Everett Alvey and uh, Arthur Miller and David Mamet and Herb Gardner. Wow. Whatever. But Wendy Wasserstein and I, our careers were sort of parallel at that point, and she said, Whispered to me, what are we doing on this panel? I said, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, the conclusion, the, the panel came to the conclusion that that for the serious writer, Broadway is an illusion. And that the for the serious writer, it's really basically off-Broadway and regional theater. If you really, you know, you know to get, if you're a serious, mm -hmm. you know, dramatic writer, then that's basically where, anyway, you'll get some things on Broadway. But don't, don't just point your, you know, your direction, consoling you politically without any, you know, uh, any other sort of um, uh, other roads to elsewhere. Know the roads to elsewhere, you know, and uh, broad, Broadway and, and to tell you the truth, all, uh, regional they treat you like a king. <laughs> you go out there, <laughs> right? You go out yeah. there, and, well, you're your star. Come back to the So I think that um, you're right. And when you, I teach at NYU in a dramatic writing program, and these kids even last. <laughs> Yesterday, the kids were they said, "Well, what do we do if we don't make it?" I said, "You can't think that way I, because that well, all they hear is well, and what we're talking about. That's very difficult for the for the new writer, for the young writer." I said, "You got to get your own people together. Kids, get yourself a group of people. Rent a theater, do it yourself. If you're doing a film, they got all these cameras, these different sort of cameras. You know, you don't have don't don't." There's a place for you, but you just kind of sort of sledgehammer your way into it. <laughs> but it's unfortunate. But it's about money, and Arthur's right. The theater's about money. Well, what are some of your highlights, Arthur, over? Well, I guess I would have to say my highlight was being an original member of the Negro Ensemble Company, uh, where we did plays. Uh, Wait, are the two you black? We're not on camera. <laughs> because we, for three years, we did plays that would I don't think would ever have been done right. by anyone else. Uh, we did plays about from American writers, African writers, uh, Caribbean writers, uh, and these plays uh, were successful. They they worked, but mm -hmm. I don't think they were plays that would have ever been done or seen. Mm -hmm. Even Leslie's play, right. you know, was there. And these these were new writers and exciting writers, and also you, I was there with a great group of actors, uh, some of whom are in, in a reading I'm doing. But uh, Douglas Turner Ward uh, was the artistic director who selected these plays. And we worked for three years constantly. How many actors can say that? We went from one play, it would open, we would start rehearsal on the next play. We were, um, we were picked and we went to England, went to uh, 
Rome, uh, and I think later on to Germany. So it was a time of uh, a great artistic uh, t a time to learn, to continue to work, to work all the time, to challenge yourself from one play to the next. It, w it wasn't all the same. You didn't have a hit. <laughs> you, know, you, you did the play and you, would get, you get 24 hours to yeah. enjoy the reviews and Doug would say, okay, now well, here's the cast for the next play. Mm -hmm. So I would guess overall I have to say that's, uh, that was the basis of maybe my whole career in theater. Uh, I guess the big Broadway thrill was doing Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death, <laughs> which was uh, my first Broadway show. And just just the thought of it, I had never really kind of thought about it, but that was Melvin Van Peebles' play, and we had a great run on Broadway. It was kind of innovative. No one knew really how to take it, whether it was, uh, again, because of who, what it was, it was kind of really got bad reviews a lot. A lot of reviews were bad, and Melvin said, I'm going to keep the show open, and no matter what happens, and he says they're going to change their minds. He taught me a big lesson. He said, oh, most of them were bad. Except, for, I think, Howell Clerman said what they needed to do with that play was put it in a space capsule, put it in the, send it mm. to the future, because no one that was writing then un would understand it. And put Harry Potter in. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. so for 12 we, weeks. Well, yeah, we started well. off with <laughs> people today. saying, you know, oh, what, it was crude and so on. But because it ran, he was absolutely right. None of the critics wanted to kind of, so suddenly some, a critic who would say it was terrible would say, well, despite of some good points that it had, you said, when did you never said we had any yeah, good points? Never, never said it was any good. Then we ended up getting nominated for Tony's, actually, in every category, pretty much. We didn't win anything, mm -hmm. of course. But it was just to see how the involvement of that play mm -hmm. that had a different type of play. I'd never seen Broadway. I'd never seen a play like it that was part musical but not musical. Mm -hmm. Things There were songs, but they weren't really sung. And it was uh, a community. So it was, uh, they had another show that opened after it, which I won't name, which, which was a ripoff, which they thought was a great show. But yeah. I, <laughs> people right. can look it up. <laughs> so those were, I think, two of the highlights. And I've, I've been, you know, kind of blessed doing this. That's the only word I can use that I've managed to work and do many things. He really do has. Many He's things. just all the time. He's uh, really sought after. You know, you, you think of Marshall French and say, well, well, he's probably working. Well, we'll call him anyway. You know? <laughs> <laughs> He'd probably be doing something else, but but he's always working. I mean, Arthur is a Arthur French, and he's modest, but he he's a he's a legend, still working legend, you know. <laughs> but he really is in in, in black theater and in, in, in theater circles. Well, this actually kind of brings up a question. I think that the, given how long you've been working, might might have some interesting points on, and maybe I'm again. You can tell me if I'm completely full of shit or or not. I personally just to set this up. It feels to me like honestly, like really, racism has come way down in this country. I think what a lot of people still perceive as racism is actually something else. It's more of a familiarity community, and I just don't know you. But to me, I still feel like the entertainment industry has, in general, not just plays, but like everything has kind of this position that if you're a black artist in a particular genre, you should be doing this. And music, you know, it's very hard if you're not doing rap or R and B. You know that you know. You know, where is the new Jimi Hendrix? You know, where are the, you know, Prince, if they're trying to break out and do something, you know, different than what they're told they should be done. If, you know, movies, it seems to be kind of like either, you know, the black scene is either like very slum stuff or 
down home Southern family movies, and there and 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 this is the whole range that's given to the black entertainment spectrum. And I'm wondering, is my perception of this completely off base? And if if not, how do you find both of you find your creative, you know, hearts and and the different places? It's better, but there's still some parody, wouldn't you say? I don't think there's a parody. Without that. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> no, that's but, true. Right, right, right. It's better, but it's not the right. I mean, I think that uh, one thing about the first summer and its um, re revival at the signature, people said to me, you know, and, and that was, you know, you know what? It's so good to see that black families, they're still together. <laughs> the husband and the wife still love each other, and they have tender moments, you know? <laughs> and I don't think people, people because what we've been... Part of the problem with television, I think, to a certain degree, I don't think it's changed that much, is that um, is that people, uh, the black there was there was has never really been a black middle class on television. You see, either, you know the shake your booty type of yeah. thing on on a couple of the on networks, PIX and whatever, um, and then you but you don't you don't see like, the plethora of of, of, uh, and the Cosbys were definitely right, right, upper, you know, upper, lawyer. Upper. We and, never see that either. So there, mm -hmm. I taught some kids, uh, you know, like we used to teach at the College of Westbury, and most of the kids were from um, Brownsville, from South Bronx, and, and from all these places, and they were, you know, it was a school that gave minorities, uh, you know, uh, a second chance. And, and I had an argument with a young black, one of my young blacks, and she didn't believe that, that a family like the Cosby family existed. She said, you know, she just didn't, she couldn't believe it. Because television never showed, and it still hasn't to a, to a great degree. The first piece of summer, when it was first done, uh, uh, one of the net, we were interested in getting a series out of it. But the network wouldn't do it because they said that um, these people were too nice. They're too nice. And I still think that television has, you know, as much as people are getting work, I still think there isn't, there isn't parity yet. I mean, there's still... Whether it's racism or not, it probably has to do with economics as well. You know, the fact that they don't put as much money. Yeah, I should say, I, I think racial the, economics is probably right, much more right, powerful than actual. Right. They still know, don't put rain. as much money into a black film or a black play as they as they do other uh, other venues. I don't think. You know, uh, you know what what Arthur, what is your your take on? Well, I, I think of course it's better. The, I mean, I seem I remember uh, sort of sitting with my mother, and if I saw. You know, those black person cross the screen oh, on the yeah. soap or something. We would say, well, look, look, you know, there's a the black <laughs> person. You're pushing you know, up. Yeah, you know, oh, so we like were very excited. But there's certainly more black uh, people working. I don't know that there are many more black people working behind the scenes. There right, are, right, right, right. but not a lot. And I think, you know, the basic thing with black television or movies or even plays, either you have to entertain mm -hmm. or you have to scare them. You know, either you have to be dancing, yeah. nah, ha, ha, or you have to be, mo, mo, yo, yo, bro. You know, and that's kind of the in-between thing. What Leslie's talking about of a black family where the father is really there, where they're living and not in the hood. Uh, I, I learned a couple from my children's rejection slips from just sending in things, not because their scripts were rejected. Everybody's script gets rejected. But I remember one, uh, she, my daughter had written a script about a family, one girl's life goes good, one girl's life goes bad. No, 
And but the critique was when it came back, it said we're not interested in this script. We either have to be funny, mm-hmm. or you have mm-hmm. to be in the hood. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't whether maybe it was a bad script. I'm not saying that it was a great script. And my son got a script back. He got a rejection slip, and they said we're not interested in this. But if you have a one character play about growing up in Jamaica, a hard line play, mm-hmm. we'll take it sight unseen. So it's that kind of stuff. It's uh, where a young man called me up and talked about, um, he said something about, well, it's new now. There's uh, not that Amos and Andy stuff. And I said, have you ever seen Amos and Andy? Mm -hmm. He said, well, I'm too young. I said, well, are you too young to rent it? Because uh, I told him that I felt, and I still feel in some ways, that Amos and Andy was a militant black show compared to some of the shows. Absolutely. I agree completely. It was funnier. First of all, it was really funny. Really funny, absolutely. Really funny. Absolutely. And second of all, it had less to say. Absolutely. I agree with you completely. You know, it had, right now, there are shows on that would rival any minstrel show. That's exactly right. You know? I, and, uh, I, I completely agree, because that's, you know, in, in my second of the question, that's kind of how I feel. I feel yeah, like, yeah. you know, it, it hasn't come that far, and there's still very... Oh, Bo- the big boxes that they expect things in, but I, I do sense that you you tend to try well, to work. I, I think passing that, strange was one thing. It blew my mind how much it broke convention. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, it, you know, it was more rock than Broadway. It was like none of these. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, you know the, the the the. Did you guys both? Did you see passing yeah, strange? Right, right, right. right. My, my favorite line was when you know after the, he's playing all hood and talking about how he grew up in a. You know, scrapping a mean dime, right, right, right. or scrapping a lean down on the mean streets of South Central, and he turned to the audience. It's no one on this stage has ever had to scrap dimes on the mean streets of South Central. <laughs> well, you know, I think that some black work, I still think to some degree, belongs in a realm called curiosa. You know what I mean? But that had, a, but I think that's part of why it had a hard time finding the audience. Right, right, right. I mean, but I, I went, and quite frankly. I, the night I went, there were literally like two or three black people in the audience. It was actually strange. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it was like... Well, but, but <laughs> the, 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 the legitimacy of, of black... If, if, there, if there's enough black works being done, you know, uh, uh, then I think things, things would certainly change. I mean, legitimacy... It's American theater. It's American mm-hmm. theater. You know, I've had people who come to see a play of mine or, or, or even the other Bob... Uh, well, black writers, you know, have got to understand that this is a mirrored reflection of an America. It's not just black play, yeah, yeah. you know. Although I still defend the idea of black theater, I still think, I, thank goodness, I, it's still here. You know, I don't want it to become so much. I said to disappear, but I love my pink feet, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I love my chitlins, whether you like it or not. And, you know, that, that, that to me is who I, partly who I am, and I will never give that. I'll never sacrifice that. But at the same time, because I say I, I, I'm a black writer, I am a black writer. I'm an African-American writer. It doesn't mean I'm not an American writer mm-hmm. as well, who's writing about this whole society. But I think that, I think you're right. I, I just think that... Um, and what I was wondering... That, there's, no, that is, there's, too player, there's too much tokenism. Yeah. Yeah. As a playwright, have, have you personally encountered producers or backers or something that have tried to change your script to fit get you to change the script to fit into some of these more... Only once, but generally not. Generally so, not. But, but because most of, the, most of the, my plays have been... Many of my plays have been done by, by black theater. St. Louis Black Rep or Ensemble Theater of Louisville. Uh, I mean, Ensemble Theater in, in Houston. Uh, the Negro Ensemble Company. You know what I mean? Crossroads. You know? And um, uh, so, therefore, I haven't... 
I did have one of the plays done. One of my plays was done by um, a theater company here in New York, uh, and uh, but they didn't try to change it, you know, because if you're firm enough about it, you know, then you don't have to worry about people changing your material. When I was younger, that happened. Sure. I was too happy to get it done, <laughs> you know? but that doesn't happen not now. And I tell young people that uh, it's your play, young writer. It's your play. Participate. Be a part of the process. Don't let, be so happy to give your play away and let somebody, you know, change it to suit themselves, you know? That can happen. Well, that happens even if you go in. Usually the first thing, you know, some director will say, you're angry. You're right. <laughs> That's the first right. thing. It doesn't matter what the play is like. You're angry. <laughs> and, and so because that's kind of how the director sometimes just see you. You know, mm -hmm. you can't, can't be just happy and say, oh, okay. It's right, nice right, 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 right. You, you got to be angry. You know, you're an angry black man. <laughs> I remember having, uh, coming in to auditioning for something. I had a young director. You know, she was a young woman, uh, very nice, and I guess she was somewhere in the Midwest or something. And she, she just kind of said, I read for her, and she just said, well, I really think that you're and an angry black man. And this was a, a woman. You knew she didn't know who she was. You know? <laughs> she was about 21 years old. But she, you know, she, the assumption is that they really know what your life is right, like. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. that, you know, that it, it's shocked if you say, well, what, was, what did you do? Well, I said, my life's not particularly interesting. You know, I grew up, I got married, I had two children, you know, I have grandchildren. But that's not interesting. You know, you have to say, mm -hmm. or you put in something, well, I used to be a drug addict, you know. Uh, <laughs> you know, my mom. Well, well, you know, you're right. So th th those are the stories that get done. Right. The stories not, and I think the thing about, uh, you know, Leslie's, even in the play that Leslie's written now, where they're, they're in the subway and they're all doing bad and they've got all these problems, there is a couple. Mm -hmm. In the play, there is a married couple in the play who stay together, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and who you know are going to stay together. They fight yeah. and they have arguments, but they're they're together. They're in love mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. they're together, even if they're not saying every minute, mm -hmm. "I love you, darling. Mm -hmm. You're beautiful," and you don't see that, you know, mm -hmm. very much. And you really don't. And that's a tragedy. I mean, I think that um, to depend be so dependent on somebody's uh, somebody else's heroes. You know, and not having enough of your own. You know, and there are. I'm not talking about the Jackie Robinsons of the world, who are my heroes, and Joe Lewis's. You know, God bless them. You know, and uh, but my parents, my neighbors. You know, the people that I, that I grew up with. You know, in our communities, I recognize now how how wonderful they were, how mm -hmm. great they were. You know, and there were some great people. The people of the church, the Saint Memorial Baptist Church, in Bryn Mawr. Mrs. Lily Williams. One day she said. <laughs> You know, she said, son, how are you doing in school? I said, fine, ma'am. I'm doing fine. And she said, all right now. She said, you persevere because, you know, the old black folks, they, sure. if you had to, they have, usually have one or two polysyllabic words and they use them all the time. Persevere now. You persevere. <laughs> so she said to me, son, you persevere and you remember one thing. And she was serious. She said, if at first you don't succeed, you keep on sucking. <laughs> <laughs> she got it totally wrong, but she, she thought that, that was said great. <laughs> she thought she that's said great it right. advice, though. That's great advice. <laughs> I remember it to this day, you know what I mean? That those types, yeah. that, that, I could never forsake that woman. You know, she was an intellectual, but she was hardworking, and she, you know, she had been with her husband for years and years and years, you know what I mean? And that's what I grew up with, you know? Yeah. So nothing was perfect, but at the same time, you know, it, it was just... So your, your question is really very well... It's a good question. 
quizzes. No, I think it's led to a very good it still hasn't discussion changed. here. It, yeah. still hasn't, it hasn't changed as much as it, as it could and it should. You know, um, um, the, the, the Obama election, I think, is important, you know, uh, to lend legitimacy to the explorations and experiences of blacks in America <laughs> who built this country, to tell you the truth. Built half, built half of D.C., at least, anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, so, and I'm not a militant, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so... Okay, so Book of Lambert is uh, February 13th. It opens on the 13th. Through yeah. March 1st. March the 1st, right. uh -huh. uh, La Mama. You can go to lamama.org for tickets La and more information. Ticket, ticket information. Right. Uh -huh. And, uh, well, Leslie Lee and Arthur French. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming down. I, I wish we could talk for a minute. It's over a lot, a lot longer. But hopefully, everybody can get down and see the show at La Mama. I hope so. I hope so. Thank you yeah. for having us. It's been great. Okay. Thank you. All right. Great. Listening room. Prospect Theater Company was on hand as one of the featured performers in the showcase on the 25th. They got a new production called The Dome that is opening up shortly. Go to prospecttheater.org for more information or the show notes. But they also were celebrating the release of their cast recording for Honor, the musical they did last year. And I actually did all the tracking for that album here in this studio. Singing live on January 25th was Stephen... Eng performing Little Grey Stone, and here that is. Nobuyuki is based on Shakespeare's clown, Touchstone, and Nobuyuki does not live by the same code that uh, other samurais do. What is that code, you wonder? Well, Nobuyuki is going to sing a song about it to explain his unique philosophy to the two girls. Now, according to Nobuyuki, survival in the dangerous world of feudal Japan depends mostly on how one plays the game. Go! A game of subtlety, strategy, and finesse. Go! That unparalleled cerebral sport. Go! You may consider it frivolous, nonetheless, yes. No, I retort, for life here at court is a game of the very same sort. Fortunately, I'm a master of this game. Two sworn enemies met on the field of honor. Two antagonists massed in a grand array. Ranged all around for the imminent fight were stones of the noblest black and white. And nobody knew yet who might carry the day. But among the myriad ranks of the rival armies, each so monochromatically on display, there sat unassumingly on the board a stone overlooked and completely ignored, a speck of innocuous, inconspicuous gray. Little gray stone, little gray stone, cast in a color that was all his own. No one knew which way little gray was leaning. A little bit dark, a little bit light, right in the middle, neither black nor white. He had made an art out of in-betweening. Every other pebble had picked a side, stoutly standing firm in it. But our little rebel declared with pride, I'm determined to be indeterminate. 
Whether I'm good, whether I'm bad, why should it matter in a world gone mad? I'm hardly a threat to you either way. So said that strange little stone of gray. But soon the furious fight had begun in earnest. Countless warriors clashed in a fearsome fray. Many a proud and implacable soul was plucked from the board and plopped in the bowl. How many stones were lost that terrible day? Who can say? But I assure you this, not a single one was gray. All through the battle he was left alone, even in the midst of the wildest melee. Whether he's friend, whether he's foe, none of the other fellas seemed to know. So it was our smart little stone of gray lay low. When the matter wasn't yet do or die, his hue was just an oddity. But sitting in the thick of that hue and cry, his shifty shade was quite the commodity. In turbulent times, tables will turn, but there's a lesson in it you can learn. This life is a game that we all must play. You may do great deeds one day, if you're able, but to do them you must stay on the table, which is why I have been true to that self-preserving hue. I never will betray. So says this one little stone of Shall we play? On the positive side. Hey, once again, this is Marty Cooper, and uh, I'm not quite on the positive side this week. First of all, I'm a little under the weather, but I'm not going to ask for anybody's sympathy. Uh, <laughs> I have the usual uh, winter... Uh, cold, whatever. In any case, as I mentioned before, I have taken, since I've left Colony, I've taken on the job of ushering. And uh, I see theater in a whole different light at this point. I constantly have this running argument with people, uh, don't kill shows before they happen. And uh, now I have a vested interest in all of this because uh, as shows close, uh, work becomes uh, uh, kind of feeble. Watching the online chat, all that chat, one of my favorite sites uh, for unhappy people, to find unhappy people. The story of my life had one performance last night, and the vultures have started descending on it, you know, as they have done with Shrek, that it won't last to the Tonys. I don't know how happy you people would be if these shows closed. You probably want to see them go away. Uh, but a lot of people, including myself, uh, would be out of work. I'd love to say this. Uh, I'd love to put in my post on all that chat, but every time I do, I get kind of nasty and I get kicked off the board. Uh, so I'm not going to do that. Uh, but for all you forgive me, for all you unhappy queens, uh, stop attacking things before you know what you're talking about. Half the people that attack these shows haven't seen them, uh, which was my point a couple of years ago with the Pirate Queen. Uh, 
people didn't see the show, but they heard it was bad, so they, they took upon that argument. If you've got nothing else to do, uh, uh, try Googling something else when you get home or whatever and leave Broadway alone uh, until you know what you're talking about. Uh, actually, tonight I am going to be, uh, I'm going to be at City Center where, uh, where they're playing music in the air as part of the Encore series. Uh, as part of the Encore series. One notable thing, it will have Marnie Nixon. And for those of you who are too young to know uh, who Marnie Nixon is, she was the voice of Natalie Wood in West Side Story, the, the voice of, uh, of Deborah Carr in King and I half of the voice of Audrey Hepburn and My Fair Lady. In actuality, in My Fair Lady, Audrey Hepburn did some of the singing, but when she had to reach the high head voice, uh, they used Miss Nixon. And it'll be nice seeing her. Actually, I saw her uh, a couple of years ago at uh, Lincoln Center. They did a, a semi-staged production of My Fair Lady with Kelly O'Hara and uh, 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 Brian Dennehy and a uh, great cast, and she actually played uh, uh, Mrs. Higgins, Professor's mom. Uh, but she didn't sing a note. It might be nice hearing her uh, sing a few lines here, see if, see if she's still got those wonderful pipes that she had years back. Uh, and of course, it will have uh, uh, the great TV and theater queen, uh, Kristen Chenoweth, as well as Douglas Sills and Dick Latessa a bunch of great Broadway people. So I am, I am looking forward to even working in that theater at the same time as these people are. So in any case, please leave Broadway alone. If you don't have anything nice to say, try not to say it. If you have any opinions, uh, some of the people I've insulted might. Uh, if you have any opinions, you can email me personally at broadwaymarty at aol.com. So once again, this is Marty Cooper. Uh, stay on the positive side. Listening room. One thing I'm going to really enjoy doing is featuring just the regular open mic performers from our Sunday Spotlight series. So don't miss. Uh, come down to our next one on February 8th this Sunday and sing, and you might end up on the program. Like Robin Rothman here performing her take on Tori Amos's song, Leather. So uh, this is, I thought I'd mix it up a little bit, do a little Tori Amos. Who doesn't like Tori? So this is uh, my favorite Tori Amos song, Leather. And uh, yeah, let's do this. Look, I'm standing naked before you. Don't you want more than my sex? I can scream as loud as the last one. I can't claim innocence Oh God, could it be the weather? Oh God, why am I here? If love isn't forever And it's not the weather Hand me my leather I could just pretend that you love me all sense of fear but why do I need you to love me when you can't 
hold what I hold dear. Oh, God, could it be the weather? Oh, God, why am I here if love isn't forever and it's not the weather? He had a nice big fat cigar In a sense he said you're alone here So if you jump you best jump far Oh God could it be the Trades. The Steppenwolf Theatre Company is very proud to announce its critically acclaimed American play, August Osage County, by Steppenwolf Ensemble member Tracy Letts, directed by Ensemble member Anna D. Shapiro, is nominated for four 2009 Laurence Olivier Awards for their London production, including Best New Play by Tracy Letts, Best Company Performance, Best Actress Deanna Dunnigan, and Best Set Design Todd Rosenthal. So congratulations, everybody. BroadwayWorld.com reports that Oscar Eustace, artistic director of the Public Theater, has announced the 26-member Broadway cast of Hair, the American tribal love rock musical. Newcomers to the cast include Gavin Creel, Casey Levy, and Sasha Allen, who join the rest of the tribe, who are currently reprising their roles from Central Park last summer. Currently in rehearsal at the Union Square Theater, Hare begins preview performances on Friday, March 6th at the Al Hirschfield Theater, with an opening night set for Tuesday, March 31st, 2009. Curtain call. Well, that wraps up another show, Volume 303. And remember, you can go check out all the show notes online for links and information on everything we covered in this show. Just uh, show notes for Volume 303 at broadwaybullet.com. Just like to remind everybody again, please, if you, uh, if you do have the capability at the time, if you can make a donation to help save our recording studio space, it would be uh, absolutely deeply heartfelt and appreciated. Um, and don't, uh, next week we're going to have a lot more featured performances from the showcase that's coming up this Sunday, the Sunday Spotlight. So if you're in New York or you're going to be in New York, come down and visit us. All the information is at broadwaybullet.com. It's from 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. Sign up for the open mic. begins at 5.45. And I uh, hope to see everybody there. And, yes, we do have another very special guest lined up, but it's a surprise. You're just going to have to be there to see who it is. All right. Well, until next week, this is your host, Michael Gilbo, and thanks for hopping on board the Broadway Bullet. Well, I wouldn't want it to be too perfect every night. It is live, after all. If I see one more Christmas carol regionally, that Dickens hey. has made enough money in the But we kept all the jokes that made people laugh from before. And all the ones that didn't. Because rent is about much more than just friendship, love, and musical theater. It was about 
something that shook the musical theater. Working at Lincoln Center, it sounds very huge and elevated, and that's what it feels like, like once you're working there. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc., to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.